Father, we claim that promise which we've just sung, that whatever happens in life, you will never, no, never, no, never forsake us. Father, we pray that we'll feel that acutely this evening. We'll feel your closeness, your love, supremely as we look at the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, please lift up our hearts to him, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. No one likes change, do they? I hate change. The thing about change is change produces uncertainty, and uncertainty can be scary. We know this as individuals, don't we? We, um, I was chatting with someone last night who's concerned for his job uh, because of Brexit and, and, and the change that might, that might bring. I was chatting with someone a few weeks ago who's going through a, a change of relationship status. That's really difficult. I have other people in our congregation who are about to have kids, and the change there will be huge. And others of us, we're worried perhaps about our folks, our parents who are getting older, and the change in their health, and that's concerning. Uncertainty stresses us out, doesn't it? Because it, it reveals to us that really we're not, we're not in control. And we, we want to know what, where, uh, wh- uh, when, for how long, and, and for who with. We want, like to know the details, we like to have it mapped out. But change throws all of that up in the air. And that's scary. We know that as individuals, don't we? But uncertainty can also be scary on a societal level. It's funny, actually. We didn't plan this, but Shannon Eunice alluded to it in our prayers. Um, Most social commentators now agree that the Christian worldview, which undergirds our nation, is currently being eroded away at a frightening pace. Uh, Tim Farron, I'm sure you know of him, he's the, the previous leader of the Lib Dem party. He, he recently wrote this in a, an article in the Guardian newspaper. By discarding Christianity, we have kicked away the very foundations of liberalism. So we cannot be surprised when what we call liberalism stops being liberal. People don't mind Christianity until you show some sign of actually believing it. People talk about shared values today, but when they do, what they mean is, these are my values, and I'm going to pretend that they're also your values, and I'm going to demonstrate contempt for you if you depart from them in any way. And we know from Tim Farron's political career, that cost him dearly, because he was a Christian. Now, we need to get some perspective here. This isn't North Korea. If if you're going to choose any country in the world where you're going to be a follower of Jesus, the UK's got to rank pretty highly, right? But nonetheless, we are seeing change. And this change is clearly producing a great amount of uncertainty and fear in the church. Now, the Hebrew Christians who first received this letter, they were also in a a situation of great uncertainty. See, when they converted from the Jewish faith to Christianity, Christianity was, was more like an underground movement. But by the time this letter was written... The Roman state had begun viewing Christians as a dangerous cult, which must now be stamped out. We read back in chapter 10 how by following Christ, these Christians, their reputations have been left in tatters. Their property has been confiscated. Their church leaders have been rounded up, imprisoned, and then killed. 
So if you were to go away and read this letter later on, you can get, you get the sense the apostle is really worried that these believers are going to walk away from Christianity and revert back to Judaism, a faith which was legal and allowed in the Roman Empire. So chapter 13 then, you can see from the little NIV subtitle, is the Apostle's final remarks, his concluding exhortation. But what surprises me here is that he simply tells them things they already know. He keeps saying things like, remember, 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 don't forget, and remember. Now you know that, as Tom mentioned, this is my last sermon here, and I'm sorely tempted therefore, to come up with something really profound, something novel, some inspiring last charge for us here. But actually, I've chosen this passage because here we have a Bible teacher simply telling a church things they already know. So my concluding exhortation for you here this evening is this. In an uncertain and changing world, keep proclaiming the saviour who does not change you see on your handouts what our first point is we're going to begin by looking at various temptations we'll face in an uncertain world beginning with the urge to just love ourselves curve in on ourselves look down with me in your bibles at verse one verse one keep on loving each other as brothers Don't forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember those in prison, as if you were their fellow prisoners, and those who are ill-treated as if you yourselves were suffering. Now, given how dangerous it was to be a believer back then in that time, we can imagine how tempting it would be for the Christians to just bunker in to be suspicious of any strangers or newcomers who might come along to their fellowship, maybe thinking they were government spies or something like that. We can imagine how tempting it would be for them to disassociate themselves from from Christians in prison. Because what if going to visit them in prison puts the authorities onto the fact that you're a Christian too? And then they might come and throw your family in prison. See, uncertainty, it, it can have a... A paralyzing effect on our love context. In my research this week, I, I came across the work of Margaret King and her study on the psychological effect of change. And this was her conclusion. I don't read the whole thing, I just read the conclusion. One of the most demotivating things for human beings is uncertainty. In fact, if we're not certain, we will tend towards doing nothing. We are very, very hesitant to put resources at risk and change is all about doing that. So in the light of this inclination that we have to bunker in, the apostle has to remind the church in these verses, no, no, don't do that. Love one another because you're family. Despite the risks, you are brothers and sisters. You're the same body. Love one another. So he alludes here to a a time in the Old Testament when Abraham was unknowingly showing hospitality to angels. He didn't know who they were, just some random blokes coming along, but he showed hospitality to them, and he was blessed by them. And the, the point here is that the implication is if we go out of our way to welcome newcomers, to welcome strangers, potentially dangerous people, well, it could be to our blessing too. 
I'm sure you know this if you've been, if you've been here for a while. St. John's is always in a state of flux, isn't it? Um, I've only been here four years, and you, you see um, we have families coming and going the whole time. You think we said goodbye to the East family a couple of weeks ago, and the Grewers, now us. And, and we also have this sort of constant conveyor belt of staff almost sort of rolling over every few years or so. Now, given the rate of change in this fellowship, and perhaps that, the uncertainty that could bring, we've got to admit it, it is easy, isn't it, to just bunker in. And just look after our own. It is easy just to show hospitality to those we already know and already like and already feel secure with. It is easy to prejudge people when they arrive at our church. To sort of work, we prejudge whether they're going to be a blessing to us or not. And if we don't think they are, we won't bother with them. It's really easy to do these sort of things. It's really tempting when faced with uncertainty. Well, verse 4 seems like a bit of a random gear shift. But actually it reveals yet another temptation we might face as Christians in an uncertain world, which is to assimilate our culture's ethics. Verse 4. Marriage should be honoured by all. And marriage, the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. The Apostle reminds us here that marriage isn't some sort of cultural invention. That's what the media likes to tell us. It's just a cultural invention. No, it's not a cultural invention. It's a, it's a precious gift come down from God. It's, if you like, it's a jewel. A jewel which is to be valued by all because it, it contains the gospel. So as we love our wives and honour our spouses, as we make sure we honour them, we're honouring the gospel. As we refrain from flirting with that person we're not married to in the office. As we refrain from looking at pornography. We're honouring the gospel. As we keep sex and guard it for marriage. The goodness of sex. Keeping that for marriage. We're we're honouring the gospel. Now I know as I say all of that. This is exactly exactly where we're, we're under huge pressure from our culture. And I could give you numerous examples of um, Christians who, on our country, in recent years, have lost their jobs because in private conversations or perhaps uh, by putting a Facebook post up on their wall, they, they made a defense of biblical marriage. We almost see articles like this in newspapers almost every week, to a penny. You might have heard, um, I think, last month, Harvard University in the United States, they recently shut down their Christian union because the CU refused to endorse a leader who was unorthodox in, the, in this area of sexual ethics. I don't know what we think of that. Maybe we think, okay, well, perhaps those people who stood up for biblical truth, those people who hit the newspapers, maybe they did it in a quite a belligerent way. And so maybe we think, well, maybe we'll be fine as long as we speak always with gentleness and love. As long as we as a church present these truths in a culturally relevant way, surely we'll be fine. Well, Carl Truman is a world-class theologian and a church historian. and He once said this to a gathering of his students. One day would be future pastors of churches. He said this. You, you beautiful young things of the Reformed Renaissance have a hard choice to make in the coming decade. You really do kid yourselves if you think you can be an orthodox Christian and be at the same time cool enough to cut it in the wider world. Frankly, 
In a couple of years, it will not matter how much urban ink you sport, how much fair trade coffee you drink, how many craft brews you can name, how much urban gibberish you can spout, how many art house movies you can find that redeemer figure in, and how much money you divert from gospel causes to social justice. Maintaining biblical sexual ethics will be the equivalent in our culture of being a white supremacist. I wonder, are you ready for this change? Because in our changing world, the pressure is on to assimilate our culture's ethics. Well, another temptation for us will be to make wealth our security. Look at verse 5. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Reading between the lines here, it seems as if these suffering believers, fearing the unknown, were beginning to take refuge in whatever wealth or or earthly possessions they had left. In effect, they were making money their functional God, their protector, their shield. Now, of course, we do the same thing, don't we? We um, We just don't see it. I think of all the pastoral issues people have come up to me in the past four years or so with, nobody, I think, nobody has ever said to me, Andy, help me, I think I've got a love of money. No one's ever said that. See, wealth is deceptive. Then it breeds this false security. It's a security which always promises to be just around the corner if only you just had a little bit more money. I came across this heartbreaking interview with Elon Musk. You know Elon Musk? He's the 42-year-old billionaire owner of PayPal, SpaceX, and uh, uh, Tesla cars, the electric cars. And he's, he's been divorced three times, and he just got dumped by his actress um, girlfriend, Amber Heard. And he actually bared his soul in this interview. He said this, going, going to sleep alone at night kills me. It's not like I don't know what that feels like, being in a big, empty house and the footsteps echoing through the hallway, no one there, no one on the pillow next to you. How do you make yourself happy in a situation like that? When I was a child, there was just one thing I used to say, I never want to be alone. I never want to be alone. But sadly, he is alone. No amount of wealth can buy you security, buy you peace of mind. Well, knowing this, what does the apostle do in verse 5? He calls to mind that, that, that reading we had uh, from Deuteronomy. You might remember the, the people of God are just about to enter the promised land. God sets them a big job. He says, right, see all these terrifying, massive nations over there. Right, I want you to, to go in and take them out. What? You know, everyone, they're all freaking out. They're terrified. But what has God promised them? In that shifting, uncertain, changing political landscape, he says, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. And he says to these people, and says to us in our uncertain, changing landscape, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. So make me your security. Don't fall on money. Now I can kind of imagine how this 
letter would have gone down the first time it was read out to these churches. They, they don't like me thinking, they're like, listen to this, arms crossed going, all right, yeah, stand firm on the truth. Make God your security, eh? Well, that didn't work out for our leaders, did it? Because where are they now? Well, they're either in prison or buried six feet underground. See, verse 7 indicates that in the light of all this uncertainty, these Christians Christians were tempted to forget the wholehearted. The apostle in verse 7 wants their memory not to be despised, but to be be honoured. Look at verse 7 with me. Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. I'm sure you remember back in 2014, the Boko Haram militant group um, captured 276 girls from a little village called Chibok in northern Nigeria. There was a girl called Monica, who was one of the the number uh, captured. She was a schoolgirl and a pastor's daughter. And I'm sure you know, all of them were were forcibly forcibly converted to Islam. But Monica simply refused, outright refused, at gunpoint refused. So to make an example out of her, the militants dug a hole, buried Monica up to her neck, and then stoned her to death. I think she was 15 or 16 years old. Her dad said this recently. To die for the sake of Christ, that is the happiest thing for me. I'm grateful she did not change her faith. I think it's only often when we, when we hear stories like that that we realise we've set the bar for discipleship so pathetically low. And Monica, people like Monica, she just plays us offside. Revealing the sort of mediocre discipleship which we're so often content with. The apostle says we've got to remember these martyrs, remember these leaders, these people who spoke the word of God and were bold and proclaiming it, yet they lost everything. Don't despise their wholeheartedness. Don't think they were stupid. I pray that in, in our context you might do the same thing. That's why I subscribe to things like Open Doors and and the Barnabas Fund and and Christian Concern for Our Nation. Things like that helps you to be aware of Christians standing up and and risking everything to make Jesus known. Let's not despise the wholehearted. Now, I chose to preach this passage, not because it's an easy passage, as you've discovered by now, it's a very complicated passage. (laughs) But because being with you over the past four years, I discern that these, these are the are the big temptations for our fellowship. And these are my concerns as, I, as we leave here. But despite all the uncertainties, actually, I'm, I'm not concerned. Because in Christ, we have an unchanging saviour. That's our second point. Look down with me at verse 8. I love this verse. Jesus Christ is the same Yesterday, today, and forever. Friends, here is a verse which can give us comfort in every changing circumstance and in our ever-changing world. See, Jesus, he is the constant. He is the anchor. He is the rock. He is the one guarantee that in the end, everything's going to be fine. 
In verse 9, the apostle launches into this sort of potted summary of the whole letter. We won't go into it in detail. I'll leave that to you uh, to do on Wednesday night. But he explains why it would be crazy for these Jewish Christians to revert back to Judaism. To be swept away like a tide by its various food laws and, and ceremonies. It would be crazy for them to do that because what we have in Jesus Christ is so much better. See, in him we have access to a better altar. Being able to approach God with confidence instead of fear. That we can, uh, in him we have a better sacrifice because Jesus suffered once for all to make us holy, clean in God's sight. In him we have a better high priest. Jesus lives even now to pray for us in our weakness. See, yesterday at the cross, today as he intercedes for us, even now as he's praying for me, as he's praying for you, and forever as he's looking ahead into eternity. See, Jesus stays the same. And he's aware of our temptations. More than that, he's aware of our failings and he's aware of our selfish, bent in, half-heartedness. But nonetheless, we look to him and looking to him, the unchanging one, well, strangely, we get changed. (laughs) See, verse 8 is kind of the hinge upon which the whole of this passage turns. See, despite all the uncertainties of life, the, the certain future that we have in Christ well, it enables us to make sacrifices. And this is our final point. Look down with me at verse 13. Over the page. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace that he bore. Now, in the book of Leviticus, the outside the camp is, is, the, the, is the place of curse and shame. It's, it's where people took animal carcasses and threw them outside into the dirt. It's where criminals were executed. And it's where the Lord Jesus Christ was crucified. Now with that in mind, the apostle says, let us go to him out there. Outside the city. Outside the gate. Because to follow Christ means sharing in his disgrace. To be a Christian means to be disgraceful in the eyes of the world. Now this is a truth that most Christians throughout time and throughout the earth today know acutely. But I suspect we're going to come to know this truth in coming years as well. Now the question is why on earth would we choose this life for ourselves? Maybe you're visiting here tonight and you're thinking why on earth Christians choose Jesus? Why would they choose to be disgraced and disliked? Well verse 14 has the answer. Because here, for here, we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Now, about 10 years ago, TfL announced the, uh, there'll be a new tube line called the Elizabeth Line. And immediately after that was announced, people started buying up knackered old properties along the route where they suspected and hoped the, uh, the, the, the line might go. They, they put in a massive risk, a big punt to invest in these properties. And now the map's been revealed, and I think that the Elizabeth line has been called, is opening next year. 
These guys are going to make an absolute packet. The people who've had the foresight and the wherewithal to invest along that line, well, they're going to reap the rewards. Well, here in verse 14, the apostle calls us to invest not in this city, not in this world, but in the one to come. See, at present, belonging to Christ's kingdom doesn't look impressive. It's knackered. But his resurrection gives us certainty that one day that investment will pay off. And if, unlike those house buyers, they were just guessing where the line would be. We know. We know what the future is. And that means we can afford to make costly, sacrificial decisions now. There are three sacrifices here in these uh, coming verses. A sacrifice of lips, a sacrifice of love, and a sacrifice of loyalty to the leaders. But he begins with lips and praise. Why don't we uh, read with me verse 15. Verse 15. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name. And do not forget to do good and share with others. For with such sacrifices, God is pleased Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must, be, who must give an account. Obey them so that their work will be a joy, not a burden. For that would be of no advantage to you. Now when I hear the word praise, um, back there in, in verse 15, I, I, I often think singing. I think, oh yeah, someone on guitar, praise. That's what praise is, right? That's not actually technically correct. If I'm praising David in the office for doing something particularly well, I tend not to sing him a song. When uh, I praise Hannah for cooking a delicious meal, I tend not to serenade her literally with, with song. No, we use words, don't we? We commend people with words. We praise people with words. And, and that's what's going on here. Offering a sacrifice of praise means publicly confessing the name of Jesus despite the cost. One man who did this in recent years was Richard Scott. He's a, he was an experienced GP for over 35 years. Back in 2010, he had a patient uh, come into his clinic. He was from a Muslim background. He was really suffering. And, and Dr. Scott asked him, does your faith help you at a time like this? And the patient said, well, no, not, not at all, really. So Richard said, well, can I share with you how my faith helps me when I'm going through difficult times? And the patient agreed. He said, yeah, I'd like that. Thank you. And Dr. Scott was then able to, to share something of his faith. The man left, went, went away happy, but his family weren't pleased. And they reported Dr. Scott to the GMC, who then hauled him over the coals, dragging him to court, giving him an official warning. It left an irrevocable stain on his professional career, which never really recovered. But in his book, he recently wrote this. Many people ask me a simple question. With all that you've gone through, do you still talk to your patients about God? The answer is easy. In the last month, I prayed for a man dying of cancer and seen a lady with severe depression beaming with joy, having plucked up the courage to join our current Alpha course at church. Many of the drug addicts we treat are also an alpha, and one is already wants to be baptized. 
Another lady is in her mid-30s, close to death from alcoholism. She's responded to medical input and prayer from the wider church family and cannot wait to come back to the fellowship. The list goes on. Why would I want to stop now when there is so much work to do and God is clearly not asleep on the job? See, the world might scorn the sacrifices which we make for Jesus. But given the future certainty that he offers us, those those outward-looking acts of love, they're not foolish, are they? Those costly acts of giving, they're not wasted. And those people who die proclaiming the gospel or lose their jobs, well, actually, they've not lost out at all. Back in the 16th century, there were two friends. One of them became a sailor under Captain Drake, and the other became a, uh, became a merchant, a very wealthy merchant. They met up years later. They would have been in the 50s or 60s, at the end of their career. And the merchant was showing off his grounds uh, to, to the sailor. See the woods over there? They're mine. See that lake? Mine. See that mansion over there? That's mine. So is that one. And he was just going along like this, boasting and boasting and boasting. And, and he turned around to his sailor friend, sneeringly, and said, well, what have you got to show for, for your life? And the sailor said, well, nothing like this. But I served under the greatest captain who ever sailed the seas. It's been a joy to serve here as a minister for the past four, four years. It has been a joy And as you know, we've faced so many uncertainties as a fellowship, so many sacrifices, so many pains, so many changes. But all that while, the Lord Jesus Christ has been our captain. He has been our unchanging certainty. He has been our rock and our redeemer. My friends, knowing this Christ, knowing this Lord, this Saviour, this captain, is it not worth giving him all? Is it not worth pouring out your words, your love, your loyalty in sacrifice to this king? As I leave here, I hand hand you over to Tom and I commend you to him. He's brilliant and he's going to love you and he's going to pass to you and he's going to preach God's word to you. Be loyal to him. Sit under his teaching. And in doing so, you will see again and again the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be transformed by him. So friends, keep looking to Jesus. He is the greatest captain. And he is worth sacrificing everything for. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Let me pray. Now may the God of peace who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen.